Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of CJR. The Kicker is CJR's weekly podcast about journalism. It's March 7th. Uh, this week we're going to take a look back at our covering Trump conference that we had last week, especially the appearance of a Breitbart news editor, why we, um, why we included him and what he brought to the conversation. Then we're going to take a leftward leap to Hollywood and look at the new Pentagon Papers movie and more broadly uh, the portrayal of journalists in films. Guiding us this week is Dave Uberti, CJR's senior Delacorte fellow. Hello, Dave. Hey, Kyle. How's it going? I'm good. I'm good. So um, that was a good day on Friday. It was an incredible conference. We just got an a all-star lineup, in my opinion. So kudos to you. Yeah, and it was it was terrific, and it was great timing. And um, you know, there was a little bit of a crackle of energy and some tension there when John Carney from Breitbart showed up. Yeah, he was definitely an outsider coming in, and I think a, a lot of people in, who I talked to in the room were surprised that he showed up. But I, I certainly think that he added something to the conversation that we wouldn't have had otherwise. Yeah, I mean, I knew that you know we had been pursuing him for a while, and I mean, my I had this impression that Breitbart is that they were swaggering and sort of willing to fight and that they were ready to take anybody on. And the truth is, according to what John told me is that they didn't want him to do it. They told him, you're going to get creamed at Columbia. And he had to sort of fight internally to get permission to come. And I got a lot of, there were a lot of people afterwards who came up to me and said how they thought his appearance sort of made the thing. Um, Because a lot of it is like, we're all talking about, oh, we need to listen and we need to sort of broaden our horizon. And but a lot of these media conferences, it's not very broad. It's the same people saying the same thing. So I thought it was great. Yeah, he certainly added a new voice to the conversation. And I think more broadly, that's something that we should consider further, not necessarily with Breitbart, but just outlets that we don't necessarily turn to, the New York Times or the CNNs of the world, something outside of sort of that elite group uh, to give us a little bit different perspectives on how we you know, retouch our roots and reclaim a lot of territory in the, the middle part of the country. I did think there might be a fight between him and Elizabeth Bumiller from the Times. <laughs> they certainly sparred uh, one or two times, and it was very interesting to watch the the tit-for-tat uh, seconds by seconds. But yeah, no, I think Carney acquitted himself well, and it is interesting just seeing those sort of media-on-media fights that we see so often in the internet play out in real time. Right. Well, I'll leave it to the rest of you to hash it out. Thanks. All right. Thanks for that intro, Kyle. And as you said, I'm Dave Uberti, a staff writer for Columbia Journalism Review. Thanks again for kicking with us. We have a great show for you today. I'm joined by a full house in the CGR studios. Delacorte fellows Pete Vernon and Shelley Hepworth. Hi. Hey, Dave. Thanks for having us. And also returning to the pod, senior editor Christy Chisholm of CGR. Christy, welcome back. Hola as well. Hola. So the first thing we wanted to talk about was in response to a great event that we held at the Columbia Journalism School on Friday. I will put links to this in the show notes. There's great video of various panel discussions that we had on journalism under Trump. The first panel that we had of the day sparked a little bit of controversy on Twitter and within my alumni groups on Facebook, at least. We had a number of mainstream media journalists from places such as the New York Times, The Guardian, The New Yorker, and CNN, in addition to a business and economics editor from Breitbart by the name of John Carney. Now, for those of you who don't know, Breitbart is a right-wing nationalist site which has in the past published a lot of racially and sexually tinged content, often with misogynistic 
or anti-Semitic themes. And its former leader is now the special advisor to the president, Steve Bannon. Right. It has a direct phone line to the president of the United States. Uh, Having said that, it is not necessarily a serious journalism organization, but we invited them to the panel to give a different perspective on media bias under Trump and received a lot of pushback, um, particularly with the question of why we would allow someone from such a site that has frequently spewed hatred or some very damaging information, oftentimes aggregated information that's twisted into false narratives. Why would we invite someone from that publication into not only the Columbia Journalism School, but also Pulitzer Hall, sort of the mecca of elite journalism? Shelley, you spent a lot of time organizing the conference. So take me a little bit through our thought process in doing that. I think that was something Kyle just wanted to make sure that we had like diverse panels and a diverse range of viewpoints on the panel. Yeah. And I mean, I understand people's critiques, right? You have a website that has at times published really objectionable material. And it is a, a hyper, one of those hyper-partisan sites that people don't look at as a big J journalism outlet. But at the same time, it is a place that uh, has the president's ear. We saw that this past weekend when somebody gave Donald Trump a either a printed out version. It was a little unclear from the reporting how he got the story, but it was a Breitbart story about a right wing radio host claiming that the Obama administration had installed wiretaps on Trump Tower. And we saw this weekend that, you know, something that comes from Breitbart pretty quickly filters into Trump's worldview and becomes, in his mind, uh, a fact. Right. And they published some pretty damaging stuff, as we say. And I just want to quote one of the Columbia alumni who posted to a alumni group that I'm a part of on Facebook. And she was basically making the case that communication scholars and journalists should absolutely track the sources of hate propaganda and fake news and interview the purveyors as sources. We don't have to invite them into Pulitzer Hall and pretend they are journalists, too, because they are certainly not. I think it's a really difficult question. I mean, I don't know that I necessarily come down 100% on one side or the other. Like, I I completely see that argument. And and part of me is like, I mean, also, so Carney, I will say, I mean, this is a little tangential maybe, but Carney, I was uh, not expecting to like the guy. And I don't even know that I, but I, I had respect for him at least showing up and talking to a room full of people who clearly disagreed with him. So there was a certain amount of courage in him doing that. That is in no way to condone anything that is published on that website. But I do, I think it's a really difficult question because it's a site that has influence right now, that has huge influence. Huge influence. And I think that all of the journalists in that room, I think I can probably say that all of the journalists in that room, where they're asking themselves a few very basic questions. And, and one of those questions is how do we talk to this large swath of the American populace who no longer trust mainstream media and who uses Breitbart as a source that like has a large readership at this point and a very influential readership? And if they hadn't been there directly, we would have sat around at that panel talking about Breitbart in yeah. some way. It would have come up. And I think by having John Carney there, who it should be said, is an experienced journalist. He came to Breitbart from the Wall Street Journal. He's writing economics and business news for them. He's not going to be one of their opinion writers and these purveyors of some of the the racist, misogynistic stuff that you mentioned. I'm very interested in why he made the decision to go there. He called it, what, the the most innovative source of news in the modern right. American. They got a chuckle. I just I, I want to read a couple of things that he said because it, it did range widely. I think a lot of things that he said were 
just laughable at face value, but that some other things were some very astute points that I don't think we would have gotten in the conversation had he not been there. As Pete said, he mentioned at one point, basically right off the bat, saying that Breitbart is the most innovating and exciting place for journalism in America today, which drew some chuckles from the crowd, and, and understandably <laughs> so. He also said, quote, this is the best beginning to a presidency that I've experienced in my adult life, which also included some chuckles and, and gave you a window into their political point of view. But I will say one of the interesting things that he did add when we were talking about sort of the press reacquainting itself with its mission and sort of speaking to the American people a little bit more about what they think the ideal of media should be in the United States, he, he said this really interesting thing, which I think is very important. And he said, quote, I think it's extraordinary that the press sort of woke up after Donald Trump's election to a moment of clarity about its job. That's one of the things that people actually find alienating. And I don't think there's any way to avoid that. I mean, I do think, generally speaking, that the press should be more adversarial toward people in power, especially executive power. But you do need to turn the ship at some point, And we just ha- so happen to be turning that ship as Donald Trump is elected. So, of course, well, I don't know if it's just so happens. I mean, I think Donald Trump is the reason that that ship is turning. I think his, I don't know, do you guys agree that well, his criticism is that, valid? Well, there's a certain point of his criticism is that it's suggesting that the reason why the media is just woken up is because people are anti-Trump because of his politics. Whereas Trump is an unorthodox candidate, his behavior has been unpredictable, the press is sort of gone into overdrive and trying to cover this, and it's, he's thrown a lot of norms out the window. It's not necessarily a political thing. So I don't know if that criticism is is completely valid. Yeah. And I think that there's I mean, and you could say this is political, too. But I think it's also because after this election, regardless of the outcome, we realize, quote unquote, journalists have been missing the story or at least a big part of the story. It didn't have a pulse on America, or at least that's what people are saying. You can debate the merits of that argument. Right. But that's an argument that people are making. And also that we now know that, I mean, it's, this has been creeping up for some time. I think David Remnick was talking about this at the conference last week, but that, that people just don't trust the press anymore. I mean, how much they trusted the press is, you know, <laughs> debatable too. But it certainly seems to be at a high right now, distrust for the media. And so I think that these are things that have become ever more clear uh, after Trump's election and and just in the whole like election cycle of the past like year and a half, two years too, I think that this has become increasingly clear. And so I, I do think that his presidency now, you know, has informed this turn. But I, it's, it's part it's part of like a larger sea change, I think. Right. I, I guess I just want to push back a little bit and take the Breitbart point of view for the sake of the discussion, which is that that is how the Breitbart audience, which is a large audience, sees this shift. You have some people sort of who are criticizing the decision to give this guy the seat at the table, saying that, hey, they purposely publish all of this nonsense. That is very different than a legitimate, honest-to-goodness media organization like CNN or the New York Times doing something, making a mistake, and copying to it later on. But I think if you spend some time in Breitbart, and you spend some time with people who aren't as media-savvy or don't have such a elite formal education, they view a lot of those things on the same plane. So you could say, hey, Breitbart purposely publishes this really damaging and sort of insightful content all the time. But people on Breitbart will go ahead and say, well, the New York Times lied to us about the Iraq war. Mm -hmm. And you could also make the the argument from the liberal, liberal side of things as well that 
CNN gave a platform to Donald Trump throughout the campaign. So it does, I mean, for me, raise the question of where do we draw the line of who should get a seat at the table, who should be involved in these sorts of discussions? And it, it just seems that it's very dangerous to start drawing a line at certain points. So do and you think there shouldn't be a line drawn anywhere? I mean, I think there, sh- there should be a line. Um, should we invite Alex Jones next time? Well, you know how I feel about <laughs> Alex Jones. I uh, used some of his fluoride-free toothpaste this morning. <laughs> well, then oh, you're safe. Exciting. You won't be programmed by government <laughs> officials trying to brainwash you. Right. No, we, we shouldn't. We obviously shouldn't invite Alex Jones. But I would hope that there's the room for some nuance for sort of non-traditional media outlets. Mm-hmm. When Carney was giving this talk, he'd yet to even publish an article on Breitbart it is possible that he might take more of a mainstream line. And I do think that it is also possible that Breitbart could change with people like Carney joining their operation. And I I think if we just automatically, with no second guessing, push them out of the conversation, that might push them into a more radical and potentially damaging position. I think that there has been signs that Breitbart is kind of shifting a little bit with Bringing on, bringing Carney on board. Um, also, straight after the election, Patrick Howley left Breitbart because they said that it was becoming too controlled. He he's obviously very pro-Trump, and he felt like his views weren't welcome there anymore. So there is some signs that it's changing. Yeah, and and yeah, I guess I agree. I feel like that we need to listen and engage. There's no point in ignoring it. You need to listen in order to understand what's going on. And pretending it's not happening isn't helpful. Well, it made it made the conversation better on some level. Yeah. Right. It definitely made the conversation better. But I just wanted to say, having said that, while he was giving this talk, the lead story in Breitbart was an aggregation of right-wing talk radio host Mark Levine alleging that President Barack Obama had ordered an illegal wiretap on Donald Trump. Which then led to Trump's tweets on Saturday. Right. So it's it's sort of a mess of contradictions. So it's a, it's a very difficult yeah. terrain. It's a really messy topic. I mean, here's what I think was the best thing about having Carney there at this panel, inviting him into Pulitzer Hall, right? I think the best thing that came out of that was that you had a room full of journalists who mostly do have the same ideological leanings, not just talking to each other, but talking to somebody who comes from a different, I mean, call it what you will, who has a different worldview, who comes from the different, a different side of things, whatever, who still is actually a journalist because it's someone, like Pete said, who is not, like, penning opinion pieces for them. Like, this is, like, an actual, like, business journalist who was at the Wall Street Journal for years. So whatever reason he decided to go to Bart Bart, whatever, like, you have an actual journalist who clearly has very different political and ideological beliefs than a lot of people in the room and who in some manner can help to represent a lot of the readers who are reading Breitbart every day, who align themselves with that with the Republican Party or what the Republican Party is becoming or whatever. Anyway, you just have someone who's representing a different viewpoint. And right, as journalists, we should be talking to people with different viewpoints, whether they're journalists or not. We should be trying to understand the conversation that's happening, whether we agree with it or not. So it's hard for us to separate ourselves, the professional from the personal sometimes, because we are all human beings, right, with our own, like, you know, so you hear the word Breitbart, it might make you feel a certain something. Uh, makes me feel a certain something. Uh, <laughs> a tingle up your leg. Oh, up my spine. Right. <laughs> More like it. But I think that was a value in having him there because he helps us to understand the people who we are trying to talk to, right? Right. And that's maybe a huge weight to put on just his shoulders or to put on what, you know, and I'm not, again, I'm not trying to say that that I don't see the argument against having him there. 
this is something that we've been talking about a lot, I think, recently in journalism, like how much if we talk about alt-right websites and alt-right speech and whatever, like, are we legitimizing it in some way? Right. Yeah, I, th- I think you definitely make a good point about having some diversity. I think it's pretty safe to say that elite media institutions are stocked full of good urban liberals, for lack of a better term, uh, and that often sort of clouds our broader worldview. You know, for me personally, I've been, I, I'm like a nerd and I read up on media history a lot. And Breitbart seems like this really fascinating case where the only parallels that I could see to it are sort of really early American super partisan newspapers that were oftentimes backed by government printing contracts or backed by political patrons, the likes of Thomas Jefferson or Alexander Hamilton. Breitbart is sort of in that same vein. And I think it's also worth asking if we are uncomfortable inviting someone like Breitbart to have a seat at the table within sort of these broader discussions regarding media, would we also be uncomfortable with inviting the former Obama speechwriters who have launched Crooked Media, who have one of if not, I have, I have no idea, one of, if not the most popular podcasts on iTunes right now. And they don't pretend to be a like a legitimate news organization. They don't pretend to be objective. They're certainly Democrats, but they frequently say some pretty inflammatory things about people in the White House. Uh, Marco Rubio is a favorite target of theirs. They they always call him Marcus Rubenstein and call him a, <laughs> call him a coward. They call Reince Priebus, the White House chief of staff, a coward. Uh, they make fun of these guys relentlessly. And I don't think there'd be quite the uproar if they were invited compared to Breitbart. Do they ever present facts that are patently false? I mean, I'm sure they've said things are wrong over the course of their analysis. And, and certainly if, 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 very partisan. Certainly they, very mm. partisan. And, and and this gets to one of the points about that Carney made as well. It's like these guys were extremely savvy political operators. And if you were to listen to the episode that they put out right before the presidential election, they were basically 100% Hillary's going to win. We don't have to worry about it. Breitbart, on the other hand, if you went to their homepage on November 8th, there would have been a much uh, different story there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't want to lend too much credence to their journalistic firepower. But when they, when Carney does come into Columbia Journalism School and says Breitbart covered the campaign more accurately than the mainstream media, I mean, there's a kernel of a point there. Yeah. And it's not like he was put up on stage to give a speech and propagate his worldview and Breitbart's worldview without being challenged. He was sure. there... And again, you mentioned to his credit, he was sitting next to our editor and publisher, Kyle, plus people from The New York Times and The New Yorker and CNN and The Guardian, like who were pushing back against him. So when he would make a statement like this is the best rollout of a presidency in my adult lifetime, he was challenged on it. It wasn't like he was allowed to present that in a fact free environment. There were people calling him on it. Right. And again, I, I just I understand the the knee jerk why would we legitimize somebody like that and an outlet like that? But I think it makes for a better conversation and a more realistic conversation about the way the media exists today in America. Right. He also had this this funny uh, point. Our editor and publisher, Kyle, asked him if, if he defended everything on the site. And he basically said, you know, I plead the fifth. I don't I don't know. I don't defend everything. I've worked at the New York Times and Wall Street Journal. And I don't, I don't agree with the columnist there. And this is no different. So hmm. he, he sort of sort of dodge the question a little bit. But I mean, I think it is a legitimate question. To an extent. I mean, like, yeah, it's one thing to say, like, I don't agree with like every single word that count, that's printed and the outlet that I work for, you know, and I <laughs> he don't was stand playing by dumb. the opinion. He was I disagree with what dumb. Dave says all the time. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, like that you can't comp- It's not the same thing as saying like I worked at like the, you know, Wall Street right. Journal and don't agree with everything they printed to say like, yeah, like writing for Breitbart and oh, no, I don't agree with all 
of the white nationalism <laughs> and you know you know what uh, what it's it's the same thing. Hey, like, he said they were you know. center right nationalists. Give me a, what the hell is that? What is center right <laughs> nationalist? I don't even want to know what right right nationalist means. What's the radical right nationalist look like if they're center right nationalists? There are gradations now of right nationalists. All right. No. <laughs> vanilla, no, thank you. It was you. vanilla white nationalist. Vanilla. It's pretty white if you ask me. <laughs> yeah. Right. No, I just, I just wanted to end with, <laughs> with one thought, too, which is that after the, after the program, we got a, a chance to talk with John a little bit, and we, we thanked him for his participation. And it did seem that there is some, there was, there was some sense within Breitbart, like, why the hell are you doing this? Like, you're walking into a booby trap. Like, why would you go to Columbia and ever talk to these people? Right. He said, interestingly, that his editors didn't want him to go. Right. Yeah. But he, he showed up to his credit. But that that to me just signals that, hey, maybe there are sort of countervailing forces within yeah. that organization. So that's something I'll be eagerly looking out for in the future. Well, and something that I, I don't know, a takeaway that I have from that is that I was not expecting to meet anyone who worked at Breitbart and like them at, at all. They I exist. mean, I'll, I'll say that. Like, I'm that they're called the bias, flesh. call it what you will, but I didn't think that I would. You know, I thought I would meet someone who worked at Breitbart and think, oh, man, you're real, really a piece of work. And you're like, whatever. But there's that, right? It's like what we talk about online. Like if you, you know, are on like a comment stream or something, you've like never met a person. You just see what they're commenting. Right. You're going to write some really, you know, volatile things, you know, to volatile them. Volatile is a nice way of putting Vol- it. Thank you. Volatile. <laughs> volatile things. Right. Um, you know, and then like if it's like the, the more that you recognize that person as like another human, <laughs> like right? The more you can humanize them, like the kind of not milder you are, but the more you, un- less you want to hurt their feelings or the more you want to understand them or the more you want to re- try to find a way to relate to them. I think it's a very human instinct. And so I don't know. I feel like Breitbart's been on like one extreme of, of this conversation and arguably you can and then the mainstream media you could say is like on the other it can mainstream be an extreme maybe so maybe <laughs> in today's that, climate it that's is that's what breitbart would say that's what they would say <laughs> right. but anyway you have different you we're coming from different parts of the conversation different corners of it right so to actually come face to face with somebody who is a journalist and who decided to go and work for that organization was fascinating and also kind of eye opening because it was like all right so maybe not I don't believe in anything your publication like espouses. I don't, you know, like I don't support that. There's nothing that I would want to do to legitimize that at all. But I understand that you're a person. I'm interested in hearing your viewpoints. It's just there's that humanizing element. And if we're trying to find a way to reach the divide, right, that exists in this country right now, but that's going to come down to meeting people that we disagree with. Again, there are always limits to it because, like, we should not tolerate any form of racism or bigotry or sexism or, you know, so I'm not condoning that in any way. But does, but it, does it change the way you think about Breitbart as a website? Mm, no, it does change the way I think about Carney. Like I said, I have respect for the fact that he came into a room full of people who were not did not have happy feelings toward his organization and probably not toward him as a result of it and was willing to I mean that that's a tough thing to do so as a human yeah I have a lot of respect for for that I have no respect for Breitbart as an organization but there is sometimes a separation between the personal and the professional like we were talking about earlier and I'll be eagerly awaiting uh, for the Carney view of the world to come through in Breitbart's coverage and for them to stop publishing third-hand hearsay. Hell yeah. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> mm.
Moving on, we wanted to have a little bit of fun in Hollywood. On Monday, Deadline reported that a new Spielberg movie was in the works called The Post, which is a film centered on the Washington Post's publication of the 1971 Pentagon Papers, which obviously is the uh, very important tale of, of, of newspapers uncovering through the help of a gov- government leaker information that had previously been withheld regarding the American war in Vietnam. Deadline reports that the movie will focus on Ben Bradley and Kay Graham of the Washington Post, elaborating that Tom Hanks is slated to play Bradley, who is a legendary editor of the Post during that time period, and the overrated Meryl Streep playing the Washington Post publisher during their fight with a federal government to publish the Pentagon Papers. So just uh, as a brief refresher for those of you who don't remember your 11th grade U.S. history course, the Pentagon Papers was uh, a set of documents, a secret report ordered to be compiled by then Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara about the history of U.S. involvement in Vietnam. Basically, what it showed was that President Lyndon Johnson had lied not just to the American people, but also to Congress in his reports about the buildup of U.S. forces there. In 1971, Daniel Ellsberg, who was a government contractor, released these papers to first the New York Times, which makes it interesting that they're choosing to go with the Post. I think we'll get into that. Uh, And then after some back and forth with the judicial system, uh, the Times was forced to stop publishing for a moment. The Washington Post picked it up, as well as several other newspapers. Eventually, the entire report came out. Ellsberg was charged under the Espionage Act, but never faced jail time because as all of this was going on, of course, another great journalism movie was being written in history, uh, which was Watergate that eventually became All the President's Men, kind of the gold standard of journalism movies. But anyway, one of the interesting things that Twitter journalism was talking about yesterday was why go with the Post instead of the Times? Right. Yeah. I mean, the the Times certainly led in the story, and they were obviously very important. The legal battle over it that ensued. Um, but I think there, you know, there could be a silver lining to. I mean, as we were discussing earlier in the office, once we heard this news, is that far too often when you are, you know, watching journalism movies or or, or journalism on TV, the lead female character is oftentimes sexualized. She sleeps with her sources. She's mm-hmm. she's sort of these a gossip columnist or whatever. Uh, the femme fatale. The femme fatale. And, you know, Kay Graham is sort of one of these legendary figures within journalism. And, and Meryl Streep is such a powerful actress that, you know, hopefully that she could bring a real new and, and important side out of, of journalism within popular culture. Yeah, Kay Graham was the first female publisher back when the Washington Post Company was a Fortune 500 company. She was one of the only women leading a Fortune 500 company. She had more than 20 years leading that paper. And so we would expect that the overrated Meryl Streep will be able to (laughs) bring her to life. Uh, And kind of, uh, Christy, you mentioned when, when we were first talking about female journalists represented in film and television that the first one you thought of was Lois Lane. Yeah, man, Lois Lane. She's the original. She is the original that I can think of, at least. But yeah, I mean, there might be other, but she is the original. Um, And uh, I mean, she's even, I think, portrayed as like more, I mean, it's not as extreme with her. Like she's still like a competent journalist and ambitious and hardworking and cares about like whatever. Like she's still like admirable in many ways and yet still hot, right? 
and has a little sexy affair going on with Superman and like often wearing revealing clothing and whatever, depending on what version of Lois Lane you're looking at. So this is a problem not just with women journalists in movies, but with all all women in movies is like it's nice to have female characters who aren't overly sexualized. Right. Uh, But journalists like there aren't I mean, this is a huge issue also in journalism movies, I think. I can't personally think of one female journalist in, you know, or character in a movie who wasn't in some way sexualized or I mean, I'm sure other people can correct me. Other people can think of some, but I can't personally think of any right now. Maybe I'll get a bunch of emails after this, but who was both like competent and like damn good at her job and wasn't like a sex kitten, right? Right. The other one that comes immediately to mind who was also portrayed as a sex kitten was Zoe Barnes from House of Cards uh, season one. She was sort of portrayed as this, you know, young go-getter blogger who was trying to disrupt an old newsroom. And in order to, tr- to get to the top of the news organization, which uh, she had been stifled from doing so to that point, she started sleeping with a source. Mm. And she eventually did sort of rise through the ranks and get scoop after scoop. And she just kept sleeping with his horse, Kevin Spacey. And then in season two, the first episode, she was pushed in front of the chain. Spoilers. (laughs) It's only three years ago you're talking about. What's up with that, though, about women always having to sleep with their sources in journalism movies? It's interesting. This happens all the time. Even in the Gilmore Girls thing, right? Like, I haven't seen the new season whatever is out, but isn't that the whole thing? How do you think I write my stories with CJR? <laughs> but it's interesting, you know, talking what the people you're mentioning, Lois Lane or Zoe Barnes, they're in fictionalized versions of right. um, these yeah. things. And when you think about journalism movies that are based on reality, as this one will be, uh, you know, the Washington Post newsroom at the time, aside from Kay Graham, obviously in, in Woodward and Bernstein time, it was just Woodward, Bernstein and Ben Bradley, or at least that's the way it's presented in the movie. Um, but in the other great journalism movie of recent times, Spotlight, uh, you did have Sasha Pfeiffer, um, played by Rachel McAdams, who was an attractive actress because she's a Hollywood star, but also I mean, like... Rachel McAdams is so beautiful. So. Right. And also, Sasha Pfeiffer's, Pfeiffer's a great journalist. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. And she was represented that way. She wasn't there as kind of the eye candy in this yeah. quartet of, right. of reporters on the Spotlight team. She was there doing her job just as well, if not better, than the, the right. guys on her team. So right. maybe right. we need more realistic, uh, based in history, right. examples yeah. of... So, Journalism movies. Right. Yeah, definitely. But I mean, in that movie as well, and this might have been because this is just the truth of how it unfolded at the Boston Globe. She was very much a supporting you know, right. role on that team. And that, that could be the case. That could have been what happened with the spotlight team at the Globe during that that story unfolding. But Mark Ruffalo was definitely the main figure. He had to figure get his Oscar that. speech yeah. in. Right. Exactly. And it was a great movie. And I, I think, you know, more so than a lot of the other movies that we think of when we think about journalism and film and TV, I think Spotlight in particular really got the tedium of day-to-day reporting right in a way that I think a lot of other films didn't. Yeah, and I'm interested to see where they go with this, if they make it into a thriller like All the President's Men. And and that's often held up as the gold standard, where you have these two uncovering a Watergate. I thought it was a little bit unrealistic when after they finally discovered this huge government conspiracy of Watergate that they immediately started tweeting about apprentice ratings. But, oh, no, that was that was this weekend. That was our president, <laughs> right? Um, Too real. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, that's the gold standard. And I think people are excited, especially uh, after Meryl Streep's speech at the Golden Globes supporting journalism. Now she's 
getting into it, uh, really putting her, her skills where her mouth is, and we'll see. I, do you know when this is coming out? Uh, I don't know off t- offhand here, no. Well, hopefully we still have a, a functioning American press at the time. Uh, right, well, this is the perfect time for a movie like this, too, I think, because I mean, you're talking about all the president's men, and that they, I feel like journalism was held to a different standard, at least in the eye of the public in that era. And now we're at a time when so many people distrust the media. So to have... Hopefully no, Spotlight, really... Spotlight fixed all that, remember? <laughs> we had but those to have, conversations. to have more movies like that that show the press in a favorable light, you know, and show the power of what the press can really do when it's at its finest, hopefully will help, you know, putting something like that into the pulp culture again. I mean, those are, it's not bad for the industry, at least right, right. now. And right? I just wanted to you know, end with one point, which I, I think is, is worth noting, which is that uh, there, there's a guy at American University, a journalism history professor by the name of W. Joseph Campbell, who's dedicated his career to basically debunking media myths, so sort of our own internal lore within the industry. And one of them that he argues is Watergate and all the president's men and sort of this movie helping to create this mythic idea within the media industry that it was Woodward and Bernstein that brought down Follow Nixon. the money. Follow the money. Deep throat in a parking garage. Yeah, it's just like all this crazy dramatic stuff. When in reality, it was a collection of various sort of judicial levers being pulled. It was congressional oversight and what have you. You know, I'm, I'm against having ahistorical storytelling when you're talking about nonfiction portrayals. But if the Pentagon Papers, you know, adds a little bit of myth to the media industry and journalism at a time of dire need, I can live with that. That was our show. Thanks for kicking it with us. I want to thank my colleagues Christy Chisholm, Pete Vernon, and Shelley Hepworth for being on the show today. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher. Go to CJR.org, become a member of CJR. You get a couple of print issues a year in addition to a weekly column by yours truly. Please leave us ratings and comments on iTunes. We greatly appreciate that, and it helps us reach more listeners. Thanks again for kicking it with us. We'll see you next week.